0: Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his 2nd Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Okay, let's get started today. Thank you for being here on time. I'm sorry I wasn't. I am so glad to be with you, though. First and second Thessalonians. We're going to begin a brand new book, and as we did last week, we had a brief overview. And uh, this week, last week, I made the mistake of leaving without my prayer card. They were all tucked in my Gospel of John book. This week I made that same mistake. So does anyone have one that you can share and I'll read from? Okay, good deal. This is our prayer before the study of Scripture. And boy, do we need that. We always want the Lord to open our eyes. And uh, so let's just just look together here and let's pray this beautiful prayer. That dates all the way back to the 4th century. Illumine our hearts, O Master, Lover of all humanity. With the pure light of your divine knowledge, open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies. And unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I printed off for you uh, some notes that I just call a brief outline, a brief overview, really, of First and Second Thessalonians. And I spent, uh, I spent a couple of minutes on that. Last time we were together, we haven't actually started the study of the book yet, so if you missed last week, don't, don't feel bad, but I did get the podcast up. But this is just a very general, I won't go as deep as I did last week, but, but let's look at it a little bit, because I think there, there's a framework here that is, that is twofold. One is a historical framework at the top of your page. For the books of First and Second Thessalonians, and the second, at the bottom of the page, is a kind of what we would might call a hermeneutical overview of the book. You remember the word hermeneutics is that biblical term for not a biblical term, but a term of biblical study that means what does the Scripture mean to us today? Exegetics is the term for what, did the, what does the Scripture mean? And in looking at its original context and everything, and hermeneutics is the study of how do we apply this? How does it apply to our life today? And so to, uh, to share with you kind of a hermeneutical overview of the book as we begin, there is a uh, now a blessed memory, a, a wonderful theologian by the name of John R.W. Stott. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Anybody ever heard of John R.W. Stott? Wes, you didn't hear of him? He's from the Anglican Church. He uh, was the longtime pastor in England, and uh, prolific author and thinker and theologian, noted theologian of the 20th century. Um, and his this comes from him, so I printed it for you to give him credit there. Um, and, and there's a fivefold way that he says we can look at these two books. But let's remember that it is primarily a letter about the gospel and the church. The gospel and the church. Uh, God's plan is for the church. One of the things I think we fail to recognize when we study scripture, especially I mean the letters of the New Testament, One of the things we fail to recognize, especially as evangelicals, is that we are so set on reading scripture and what does it mean for my life, and there's nothing wrong with that, we forget that these letters were all written in context to churches, not individuals. Now, a couple that were written to individuals, I mean, we can think of Philemon, that was a letter to an individual, okay, Uh, so I'm not saying there aren't any individual letters in the New Testament, but... By and large, and, and I didn't prepare this in my notes, I, is there any other in the 27 books? I'm trying to think. It's Philemon, well, I guess Timothy, okay, Titus. Okay, again, letters to pastoral. Those are called the pastoral epistles, letters to actual people. Um, but the bulk of the letters that we study, the 1st you know, and 2nd Corinthians, the Ephesians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, uh, the Hebrews, all of these things are to congregations they are to the church and so we must primarily understand that the advice being given in exegetical context is to the church not to the individual life there may well be an application to the individual life the problem we have is when we ignore the application to the church the New Testament by and large is a set of books given for the church it is collected by the church it is recognized by the church it has its authority from the church the historic church so I think John R.W. Stott very wisely points out that this is a letter about the gospel and the church so he points out five things that we can look at number one is what does it say about Christian evangelism uh, he says it speaks to us on how the church spreads the gospel. So there's a theme that we'll look at in chapter 1 today. How the church spreads the gospel. And you see that I noted for you there the kind of where that's found in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, two is the idea of ministry. Christian, what does this book have to say to us about Christian ministry? Uh, how pastors serve both the gospel and the church. We'll see that in chapters 2 and 3. What does this book have to say to us about Christian behavior? How the church must live according to the gospel. We'll see that in chapter 4. And then what does this say to us about um, hope? That's a wonderful, wonderful teaching from this letter, the concept of hope and how the gospel should inspire the church to have hope, from chapters 4 and 5. And then what does the letter say to us about Christian community? How to be, and I underline the word be, how to be a gospel church. A Christian community is a gospel-centered church. So, and we'll find that in chapter 5. So these are just themes. These are little, but there's a little larger theme here that, that a couple, about three, I think that we can follow. And that is that the reason this letter was written is that Paul felt a need to explain. One of the reasons is that Paul felt a need to explain their suffering. The Thessalonian people were suffering severely. Enough that he felt he needed to explain to them why that was and what that amounted to. Two, he wanted to recognize that there were some false doctrines being spread and he needed to uh, warn them about false teachers. The whole letter of 2 Thessalonians is basically about that. The whole letter is is to warn against false teachings. Number three uh, of the larger themes, Paul offers a very stern rebuke to idle and dissenting uh, people. People who are idle, idle in their faith and are dissenting and he exhorts the people of the church to follow him he actually says that follow me that's an interesting phrase and we'll get to that in time um so that's the context that i believe uh, i've picked up from just studying a little of john rw stott as he studied thessalonians if you remember just a little of our overview from last week um I think that we also want to point out that basically the historical view of this book is that it's split into two. The first Thessalonian letter is split into two sections, the historical view. Okay, The first section being uh, pretty much the first three chapters, uh, all of the first, not basically all the first three chapters. And that is the good news, is this, this was a book that... T- this letter, we call it a book, but it's a letter, written to this church is because it's a church that Paul had founded with Timothy and Sylvanus or Silas. And after they had left, he was, a few months later, anxious for them to hear how they're doing, this new church. And so he sends Timothy back to find out, and Timothy comes back, and he comes back with good news and bad news. You know, which do you want first? Do you want the good news or the bad news? We don't know what he gave to Paul first. But Paul wrote his letter based on those, that good news and bad news. Well, the good news comes first in the book, so maybe that's what he gave him. The good news uh, will cover the, the first three chapters, the last two pretty much the, the bad news. Good news, their faith, was uh, their, they, their faith, love, and hope, those are things that Paul's going to talk about. Uh, their faith, love, and hope was very loyal, very steadfast, even in the face of persecution. The bad news, the bad news was that Paul himself was being criticized and his motives were being called into question. And they also needed some correction and some exhortation, uh, about instruction about things like sexual morality and how to understand the second coming of Christ. So these are, these were some of the bad news, the good news. They're, they're a good church. They're doing well. We've got some things we need to work on though. And isn't that true of all, all the of churches, uh, I hope hope it's tr- true that uh, that the good news can be found in in all churches. Um, well, let's begin with the book here. Um, well, I think I'll read the first ten verses. I don't know that we'll get that far. I don't think we will, but we're going to start anyway, okay, with the first ten verses. It's a good that basically amounts to to the uh, first chapter. So the first ten verses of first Thessalonians. Follow along with me. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brethren beloved by God, that he has chosen you, for our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be, sorry, let me read that, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything for they themselves report concerning us what a welcome we had among you in how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's stop there. That's chapter 1. Note that all five chapters in this first letter all end, every chapter ends with a nod or a mention and a direction toward the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a very eschatological letter, meaning it's pointing a lot to the end times. Um, let's come back up to the beginning now and think about, think about this city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica, however you want to say it. In Greece, what modern-day Greece, then called Macedonia. This the, the Greek Empire, okay, ruled the world a couple of hundred years before this, okay? Um, and the Greek emperor, uh, Alexander the Great, I believe, had a sister, and the sister's name was Thessalonica. Thessalonica, okay? The city was founded and named for the sister of the great... Uh, emperor it it's a city of great prominence it's right on the port it's right on a way to the east west uh juncture you know if you had to trade flowed from east to west this was a very important place history teaches us that this city almost became the capital of the world almost became the capital of the world uh instead of course uh We know that the Christian empire that uh, was, once the empire became, the Roman Empire became Christian, and Constantine moved the empire, the seat of the empire, from Rome to Turkey, which was called, in those days, uh, the city of Constantinople. named it for himself, okay, Constantine, Constantinople, today known as Istanbul, Um, But today, then it was, you know, today we would call that whole area of of the Eastern Asia area, we would call that today Turkey. Now, Thessalonica actually sat within 50 miles of Mount Olympus. What do we know about Mount Olympus? It was the home of the gods home of the gods. Every day when you got up, you could see Mount Olympus if you lived in Thessalonica. And that was in and of itself pretty important because the Greek gods were said to have lived on Mount Olympus, the home of the gods. And so there was that ever-present memory, pagan memory, if you will, of all the gods that you used to worship if you were a a Greek and and a former pagan who had now become a Christian. So it, let's look at the beginning of this letter. So Paul chose. You know, this wasn't the first church that Paul founded. This is actually on his second missionary journey, as we talked about last week. But as he, it was as if the Holy Spirit, in the right time, God needed and wanted this church to be built, and He directed Paul there. We can we alluded to that from the story in the book of Acts between chapters 15 and 17, which you can read to get some background. We looked at it a little bit last. Last time, if you missed that, go back and listen to the overview. But here, as we begin this this section, let's look at just this first, the way Paul begins it. There's no doubt that this is from Paul. He puts his own name there at the top of the letter. Interestingly enough, he doesn't call himself an apostle, like he does sometimes. He Sometimes he starts, I, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not this time. He just kind of puts Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus all out there, uh, as almost you know as equals and i think that's important because timothy and sylvanus or silas were equals in the sense that we're all equals okay paul didn't seem to brag about his being an apostle unless he <laughs> needed to because in some of the letters his apostleship was being questioned and so he would put that forth but he's not not needing to uh, question that so he doesn't bring it up They all knew who he was. It's only been a few months probably. We don't know how long. We don't know the exact year. It was right around the year 50, maybe 49, maybe 51. You know, you just can't, calendars aren't as exact if we go all the way back, but it's probably right around the year 50. And it's probably just somewhere within a year's time, maybe just a few months, six months maybe, of the founding of this church that Paul is eager to hear. Uh, So Timothy comes back with a report and he begins to write. So he writes to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. I, I want you to circle one word. If you if you if you circle or write in your Bibles, it's a good good thing to do. I really don't mind that. If you're study, it's a study Bible for you. There's a little word that I think you need to circle there, and it's the word "in." The little tiny prepositional phrase "in." Why is that so important? It's very important. This is not the church of the Thessalonians. It's not just the church of the Thessalonians who believe in God. It's the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. And not just God, God the Father, but in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear that connection of being a church in, this is a theme that recurs over and over in all the writings of the Apostle Paul. He is often using the phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in God. Okay, What, what what do you suppose he meant by that? We can explore it just a little bit here. Because it's very important. We start out on that note. Subject to Him. Subject to God. Okay. No, no, this is good. Subject to Him. There's more to it than just that, but you're right. He's saying God is our Father. You know, yeah, you're, We all grew up subject to our fathers, right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we have a Lord. He calls Him the Lord Jesus Christ, and lords are masters. The word Lord translates to the word master. Subjects, Slaves are subject to their master. But what I want to lead you to here is is that this idea of being in is a mystical organic union. Okay? You and I as believers in Jesus Christ are not just believers, we are partakers. Okay? And as we go through this letter and all as as in all the letters, and we talked about this a lot in the gospel of John too, we just didn't use that phrase. Faith in Jesus Christ is more than just a head knowledge. It is a life that we enter into. And this is where that word in becomes so important. Did you re- do you realize that you and I have been invited and grafted in, Paul uses the language in the Roman letters, grafted into the family of God. We have been in we and peter uses those beautiful words in his epistles he uses those words that we have become partakers of the divine nature see one of the one of the things that our modern culture does when we study the bible is we just don't we don't relate to that because we don't think mystically anymore we're westerners <laughs> we're what we're a 21st century <coughs> western m- people okay with everything, with technology at our fingertips, and we are a part of mankind that can figure anything out, and we have. Just pick a subject. We, we went to the moon, for crying out loud. Want to go to Mars? We'll go to Mars. We conquer all diseases. We haven't quite figured them all out yet, but we're well on the way and believe we will. What is there that man cannot do? That's the way we think as modern Western Christians. It's just ingrained into us, okay? So we're removed from that ancient world understanding that humanity was subjects of the great creator, and that in the fullness of time, the great creator came into our world in human flesh and dwelt among us and suffered and bled and died and eventually shared his spirit with us shared his very self with us eucharistically in the body and the blood, and we become partakers of his divine nature. Wow, (laughs) that excites me, okay? Because now I know that no matter what problems I face, I'm not facing them alone. There is a power living (laughs) within me that can enable me to stand up even in the face of persecution. Like he commends them for doing Never forget that. Never forget that you, if you are here just because you believe in Jesus and you haven't experienced the taste of being a partaker in him, then you've got so much ahead of you. Okay. And those of you who have already realized that, let me say that you are not finished yet. God will always take us deeper there is, he is infinite, right? God is infinite. There is no end to God. And, and I think that means that until the, we draw our last breath, we will grow deeper and deeper and deeper in this, in, there's that little word again, in the spirit of God. And even after we die, even in heaven, I believe it just goes on and on and on. We just continue to grow deeper and deeper because how could we ever exhaust our knowledge Or our experience of God, who is ultimately infinite. There's a whole lot wrapped up in this one little word. But it's a word that the Apostle Paul uses strategically and carefully over and over and over. Now, as he's noted that they're in God and Father, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he wishes them, his greeting to them is grace and peace. Grace and peace. Let's think about those two words, grace and peace. The Greek word for grace, charis, charis, c h a r i s, charis. Okay, the Greek word c h a r i s. And then the Greek word for peace, irene. If I can say, if I'm saying it right, irene, e i r e n e. Let me write those up here for you. Grace is uh, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. We we hear the word charisma, hear the word charismatic. It's all based on this word, charis, okay? And then peace uh, is, we're used to the Jewish word. The Jewish word for peace is what? Shalom. Yes, we're used to that. It just feels right, but Paul was writing in Greek. Okay, now he undoubtedly knew shalom, and he, okay, but he brought the word uh, irene, okay, to to our to the language of the people. Now let's cons- I want to consider both of these words for a little while because this is what he wishes for them. You know, we might write a letter today and we might say, "Oh, we wish that you would be healthy <coughs> and strong." Well, nobody. First of all, nobody writes letters anymore. That's really sad. Uh, that's that just really makes me sad. You know, every time I sit down to write, I still like to write letters, write thank you cards or thank you letters and things. And when I sit down to write them, I realize what an, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, such a uh, there's a word all of a sudden that just left me. You know dying my, art. you know, dying art. Yeah, you know, there's a word for that. This happening there. It's an obsolete thing. But they do text and they do do email. They text and email, and emails the those are the new ways. But there's something about that handwritten script that shows, wow, that person took some time, you know, and some effort. And these were handwritten letters. Um, but I, I do, I really, and I wonder what's going to happen when the when the when they finally figure out that they can no longer afford to run the post office. What are we going to do with our handwritten letters? Somebody's going to get the idea of, hey, you know what? I'll be a courier, and I'll take those for you, and we'll start all over again, because <laughs> everything starts all over again, doesn't it? It just feels like everything starts all over again. I mean, there's no way in my lifetime I thought they'd be selling vinyl records again, mm-hmm. and, and we're selling vinyl, vinyl records out, sell CDs. <coughs> I'm like, how nuts is that? They scratch, they warp, they, you know, they don't sound as good. It's a uniqueness to the sound that makes us feel nostalgic, you know? So people that never lived through it want to discover what that nostalgic feel is. Oh, I want to buy It takes records. you back. It? Yeah, yeah, it takes you back. So, you know, the idea of, of uh, grace as a, I don't even know why I got off on all that. Sorry, I digress. Charisma. Charis, uh, ch- the, the charismatic. This, the, the root here of the meaning of the word grace is that it is a gift of God it is a blessing of God. It is from God's favor poured out to humans, okay? So grace is always a gift from God. So even if you and I extend grace to one another, the only fact, the fact that we can even do that is because we have the Spirit of God living in us, because in and of myself, I'm not a graceful person, okay? I'm a fallen human being, but by the Spirit of God, I am a Hopefully a graceful person. I want to, but but the idea of grace as a, so I wanted to bring that to you. His wish for them is that they would receive the favor of God. To receive grace is to receive God's favor. Now he also wishes them peace, and this idea, the, the most important thing that we can say about the concept of shalom or peace, is that there is this, there is this context of wholeness. Okay? Not just that we would be, we would have peace that ceases our strivings, okay? You know, you, you, you've, you've been in a battle, you've been in a long uh, problem or an issue or relationship or whatever, and you just come to a point where you just, you can't do anymore, and it's over with, or it's been resolved, or you think it's over, and there's a point where you draw that breath, and you just sit down, and you go, wow, fine, and you feel a sense of peace, but that's not really peace. That's just the cessation of the strivings. Real peace is the nature of God. It is his existence. He exists in perfect peace. God is peace. God is love. God is all things beautiful and perfect. And his peace is wholeness. So to wish people peace is to wish them the wholeness that God means for them. The wholeness of what you could ever become as a human being, I wish for you the wholeness of what you could ever experience by the love of God, I wish for you. So these words, grace and peace, I mean, we use them every, you know, I know friends, they just grace and peace, grace and peace, you yeah. know. Very full, meaningful words. And in their world, when they got that and they opened that, these were words that were very important to them. Wow, grace and peace. I mean, life was hard in those days. There was no favor, from the gods, the gods, the Greek gods were known for being uh, jealous and capricious, and I mean, of course, they're not real to start with. and We know that, but that their 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 myths, their fables, wa- was that they were uh, they weren't this perfect, loving entity. So there was no peace from God in the Greek world, um, and grace. Well, that was. You know the, the whole idea of, of grace being God extending you favor—you were just lucky if the gods didn't strike you down with a lightning bolt or something in, in those Greek. Uh, so there was never this outpouring of favor from the Greek gods. You know, maybe he highly favored one or two persons supposedly, like uh, Hercules or somebody like that. You know, but so this this whole Christian faith is a new way of seeing life to these Greek people. Now, as we learned in our overview last week, it's not just Greeks in the church, because there was a synagogue of Jews in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica, there was a Jewish synagogue, and it was apparently fairly big enough and important enough that, that, that Paul always went there first. And he, you know, he says he argued with them for three Sabbaths in a row. He didn't argue; it doesn't say he argued, but he reasoned with them for three. It turned into what they thought was an argument because they rebelled against him. The Jews did, and so, so we know that as this church is founded, and as we continue to study this book, we'll see there is some Jewishness to the church. Okay, it is part Jew and it is part Gentile. As this, remember, this is a very early one. My, my, if I'm hearing voices out there, if that distracts you, go ahead and shut that door because um, it was just distracting me too. Um, there is a context in which the church, this is one of the earlier the early churches that were in the Gentile world. So we know there's Gentiles mixed with Jews. The church was always primarily remember, sent out to the Jews. The, the first the movement of the Christian Church was a Jewish movement. It was a part of Judaism, the faith of the Jews, who had found the Messiah, who had recognized the Messiah. It only eventually became, This struggle, well, is it for Gentiles too? And there was always that struggle. Uh, And and so they, you know, we had the whole chapter 15 of the book of Acts is about a council that's held to decide how are we going to let Gentiles into the faith, and what does that mean for their having to become Jew first or something like that. So that that's a separate study. But I just want you to know that there are both Jews and Gentiles here in the context of this letter. And so as he's writing to them, he says, uh, verse 2, he's wished them grace and peace. He's, he's given them this understanding that they are in God. They, they live in God. Their life, their source of their very life is in God and in Christ Jesus. And so in verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father So I want to connect a few dots here as we think about that. Number one is that Paul is always giving thanks. The word thanks here is that Greek word. Anybody know it? We've talked about it a lot in John. I'm writing it on the board. Eucharisto. 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 Which is, you get the English word Eucharist, which is what Christi- the, the formal Christian name for the, what we know as the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, the Eucharist. It's the Thanksgiving meal, the meal of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the context of communion with God is all about the, the idea of Thanksgiving. Okay. In American culture, Thanksgiving is about turkey, and we're almost there. It's yeah. November the 14th today and my mind is constantly being drawn to turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and stuffing and 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 just the pumpkin pies and and I can just smell I love cooking turkeys in my house I love getting up to that letting them roast real slow and just the smell that it fills the house with you know what I mean the other day we were walking through Trader Joe's and we saw Trader Joe's has these potato chips that are Thanksgiving dinner potato chips you ever you ever seen them uh-uh. go get a bag, treat yourself it'll just <laughs> come your appetizer for things. It's a potato chip flavor to taste like turkey and dressing basically or turkey and potatoes. Mm. Um, so hey, give it a try. Uh, we, we bought a bag. Um, so uh, but Thanksgiving is so much more Thanksgiving is the is the idea of living in. God our Father and Christ Jesus and realizing that he is the source of all life the Holy Trinity is the source of all life and that through that we can truly be thankful so Paul is saying I'm thankful for you I'm thankful for you because we have our relationship in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and so because I'm thankful for you all I um, He says, "I'm always remembering you. I'm always remembering you. Well, I'm constantly mentioning you in my prayers." Is the first thing he says. Okay, but I want to connect the 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 thought here as verse three begins. Constantly praying, or yeah, constantly mentioning you, or constant this idea of constant prayer (laughs) is the is the act of remembering. Okay, I, w- I want to try and break that out for you just a little bit here. What does it mean to remember? Let's think about that word to remember. Bring uh, something forth in our minds. You're bringing something forth from a memory. Okay, a <laughs> memory is something from your past, right? okay so you are bringing that forth into your present as you remember okay and in the jewish in the in the ancient world jewish and greek in the ancient world the thought of remembrance was a very powerful and realful thing real thing okay sometimes i make up words i almost said realful <laughs> scary isn't it it's a very thoughtful a very real thing the act of remembrance. So much so that when Jesus, in the communion supper, in the words of Christ Jesus himself, he says, as often as you do this, remember me. And that Greek word for remembrance that Jesus used was that word anamnesis. And we know that it was full because of the study of that word, we know that this this concept I'm describing to you that it was it was to make a past memory a present reality. How, what does that look like? Let me. This is why the ancient Christians just one of the reasons why the ancient Christian Church always understood the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharistic meal as a present reality not something they could explain but not just a memorial either. Pre- somehow Christ is present and he's real Now let me explain let me just try as best I can. Uh, yesterday was our daughter Brooks 22nd birthday 22. Kind of a fun age. There's a song by Taylor Swift, "22," and she's always been a Taylor Swift fan. And we sang that song yesterday. It was kind of fun to remember, you know, "22." It, it just kind of blows, you know. People think 21's the big age, and all that, but 22 was just kind of romantic to us, you know. And I thought 22. And, and so as I sat down to type a little, type out a little message of remembrance of her birthday. I felt myself being led to think about the thought that I was remembering the day she was born. So hard for me to believe I can remember the day. Twenty-two years ago seems so long ago, but yet it seemed in that moment of remembrance, yesterday it seemed mm. like yesterday, and I was there again. Yeah. When she, I remember, I didn't even get to hold her. Rhonda and I, neither one got to hold her. She was born. Something wasn't right. There was no, she wasn't crying like babies do, even, you know, as they tried to slaughter to take a breath or whatever. We could tell she's not right. They're over there working on her, and they whisk her away to the neonatal intensive care. It was three days before we could hold our baby. And I thought, wow, something. But it was just something. She was somehow in the womb had swallowed something that was kind of had, she was born with this infection in her lungs then and wasn't breathing clearly and so they put her in intensive care. What a gift to have intensive care to take care of those things. But but the idea what the reason I share that is the memory, the power of the memory. The power of the memory to make that real and present. And the apostle Paul is saying, I'm remembering before our God and Father your work, labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray, just like when the Apostle Paul prayed, and you know he's famous for what he, he writes about prayer, pray at all times, pray without ceasing, things like that. He's saying constantly mentioning you in our prayers. When we pray, we are, especially the prayer of intercession, okay? when we're praying for someone else, we are truly making them present before the Lord. Because God is everywhere. And we're just, what a privilege we have to bring them do you ever think about that? You're, when you're praying for someone else, you are bringing them into the memory and presence of Almighty God. These are things that can transform the way we think about prayer. Prayer isn't just a—it's a, uh, not just an act or a work of, of sterile of something. It's full of life and meaning. And this idea of remembrance. So he says, we're remembering. I'm remembering before God. I'm bringing you into the present before God with our prayers. And he says, I, I'm, rem- I'm bringing three things. The apostle is bringing three things. He's, there's three things that he is remembering. This letter, we told you about the good news and the bad news. Paul st- always starts with the good news. He, he's, he's loving on them. He's telling them he loves and appreciates them. He's going to build them up for the good things they have done and are doing and are thinking and being. But three things come to his mind. And those three things are their work of love, their, uh, I'm sorry, the work of faith, the faith of, how's he say it? Work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. So I am going to spend a little time, we're, we're we're coming up to the top of the hour here, and well, we won't get past verse three here. Um, but let's spend a little time on these three things, okay? These three things. Now, this idea of uh, work, okay? Work, their faith, <laughs> work of faith. The Greek word here for work is ergon, okay? E-r-g-o-n, ergon, okay. And the idea of this is that it is uh, a deed or a task, okay? It's a deed or a task. It doesn't have a connotation that it's particularly difficult. It's just a work, okay? Your work of faith. Now, he immediately goes from that thought to the idea of their labor of love. Now, the word for labor is a different word here than the word for work in the Greek, Okay the word for labor here is the word kopos. Okay, K O P O S. Now that word doesn't mean just work. Okay? That word particularly means it's a hard toil. So, just like we we can have work that's easy, we can have work that's hard. We can have work that's burdensome and difficult. They can have the same way in their relationships. They had a work of faith. In other words, what can we draw from this work of faith? Their faith wasn't just a head faith. It was a working faith. He was thankful and praising them that they had a working faith. There's a big difference between a working faith and a head faith. I I can't think of another word right now. Just an academic faith. okay? That wasn't just purely academics. This is why the very apostle Paul talks about things like uh, faith and work in love. This is why um, the, the, the New Testament writer James talks about the idea of faith without works is dead. Faith cannot be just academic. It has to issue, if it's really alive, it has to issue forth. Like action. actions. Actions. And that's what they did. You have a faith that works, he says. I, I'm thankful and remembering your faith that works. And that faith that works, I can see that it's working because Paul is saying because you have a real labor of love. A labor of love, we talked about the Greek word that that this you have really toiled for love. And the word for love here, as we've learned in some of our other studies, there's several words for love in the Greek language. Remember the philo? That's the brotherly love. This is agape. The word that he uses here is agape, your true love. You have labored to truly be loving people, people that love as God loves, people that love unconditionally. I think that's what Paul is saying here to them. He's commending their faith that is a working faith and that shows itself forth because they have labored hard to love one another. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? So what we're learning, what we're hearing here, what we have the privilege of hearing in this conversation between Paul and the Thessalonian church is we're hearing Paul share the gospel and remind them of the gospel and remind them of how the gospel works. So this is a church being reminded about the gospel and it shows us the way Paul shares the gospel. He shares the gospel by talking about its essence. And its essence isn't academic. Its essence is heartfelt. Its essence is is working in love and laboring in love. Um, And he says that labor of love is producing for you a steadfastness of hope. But he doesn't just say hope. He doesn't end there. He says a hope what? In our Lord Jesus, again, there's that word in, in our Lord Jesus, our only hope. And he's reminding them, I can see it in your lives. Your real hope is in Jesus. That's the only hope we have. Think of the words of the old hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Because in the ancient world, the name was the very being of the person. Okay. so there, And there's lots of others. Lots of others songs and hymns and psalms and things written through the ages that, that share. But this concept of steadfastness of hope. Now, why was that so recognizable in them? Because they were being persecuted. Remember what Acts chapter 15, uh, or uh, we looked at between 15 and 17 last week in the book of Acts. Remember what it said? Said so there was this group of Jews that really started to rile things up in the city and got all the city leaders against him. And they even went and got this guy named Jason and dragged him, who was a, apparently a church member, a church believer, in this new home church that, that, that was called Thessalonians that Paul started. And they pulled Jason out and said, we know this guy's harboring Paul and Timothy and Silas. Where are they? You know, they didn't give him up. And then it says after that, Jason hurriedly got him out of the city. Life was difficult. You know, nobody's knocking on our doors and and berating us and persecuting us because we're Christians, are they? But for much of the ancient world and through much of time and sadly in many parts of the world today, to be a Christian is to be persecuted. To be a Christian is to suffer. And I think it's really important for us and don't really have time to go any further, so we'll kind of close on that note today. It's really important for us to remember that the call to serve the Lord Jesus Christ is a call to die. It's a call to suffer. It is not a call to riches and worldly riches. It's not a call to fame. No matter what you may hear from other preachers or teachers, it is a call to suffer. Paul himself says it in his Roman letter when he says... Romans eight seventeen. We are therefore heirs with Christ if we suffer with Christ. And there's that little word if. Sometimes those prepositions are really big words. Paul says, You only inherit the joy and the glory of eternity if you suffer. So let's, let's close that thought today. What what do we how do we suffer? What do we suffer? Probably not nearly like I mean we ought to be, of all people, really thankful because we don't suffer as so many Christians do. So that, And that should inform our complaining about the things we complain about. I mean, I'm guilty as charged. The things that I complain about, I think, wow, I have nothing to complain about, really. So I need to be reminded. I need that slap in the face to kind of remind me, stop your complaining, stop your whining, stop your belly aching. Well, I have some, a lot more notes here to go through, but we'll pick up with verse 4. And we're going to talk next week about this idea that this these Thessalonian people were chosen by God, and we'll talk about what that means. Any thoughts or closing comments? I still go back to when, before the ascension, between Jesus' death and the ascension and what changed with the apostles. They were, in the, they were scared. They were hiding. They were afraid. And then Jesus can walk them through the wall. Ah, uh, yeah. And in that time, after Jesus had suffered and went through all that, and in that time that he came back to show them. Hmm. How their attitude changed, how everything about they were no longer afraid. They went out and they right. they they faced the persecution without fear. Isn't that so amazing? Speak, because they had this rec- they had that moment in time, just like yeah, the birth of your daughter. This was a moment in time they would never forget. They would it. never it was forget real. it. That's right. And that's what helped them right. to amen. I mean, the change. The change. Happened. That's right. They were transformed. The message. Of the gospel is transformation, not edification. To just believe in something, it's about transformation. Good reminder. And yes. That is, that is amazing because the act of remembrance can bring up a past into the present. And if we can remember, if it was traumatic, we can remember how Christ got us through. Mm-hmm. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Um, there is a word there that I didn't have time for. We will begin. I'm going to circle it here in my notes. So that I will remember to begin with it next week. And it's the Greek word for hope. I want to explore that before I begin to explore the thought that they are a chosen people of God. We'll talk about what hope is and how we uh, how we get there. Well, let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for time together in Bible study. and Thank you for these that are here and for those that aren't able to make it. Uh, just bless them where they are, Father. And those that will ever hear this on a podcast, bless them. May your word go forth according to your spirit and not my words. We ask this in all your blessings in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Well, that's all we have time for today. And I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at BradRileyMinistries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today, and may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as He forms His Spirit within you.